When, uh, when Megan and uh, the kids and I go to, go to visit uh, Megan's family in northern Indiana, we, uh, we leave one culture here in uh, Eureka in, um, in central Illinois and drive to another culture in, in New Paris, Indiana, in northern Indiana. And, and uh, really those two cultures are vastly similar to one another. Uh, they're not identical, but, but they, they definitely are similar. Uh, Eureka and New Paris are both small towns. Um, they're both uh, agricultural areas. Other than a bit more snow, maybe, in, uh, in northern Indiana, the, the climates are, are, are pretty much uh, the same. But there is one very distinct difference between the culture here and the culture there in, in northern Indiana. And that is if, here in Eureka, if a, if a horse and buggy were to drive down Main Street here in Eureka, that would be an unusual thing. I've, I've been here over eight years now, and I cannot recall ever having seen that here in Eureka. Anyway, now if a horse and buggy drove down Main Street in New Paris, Indiana, you wouldn't even think twice about it. You know, you'd, you'd probably be surprised if you went a week and didn't see that type of thing. And that is, of course, because there's a large Amish population uh, that calls northern Indiana home. And perhaps the, the hallmark sign that, uh, that someone is Amish is that they travel via horse and buggy. That's just, you know, if you ask you know, a random person on the street, describe an Amish person to me, that very much might be the picture that they give you, horse and buggy. Why do, they, why do the Amish do that? Why do, they, why do they go around in horse and buggy? Automobiles are faster and they're safer and they're, they're cooler in the summer, they're warmer in the winter, uh, it's a much smoother ride. Uh, of course, the reason that, that Amish people spurn the use of cars is, is because they're seeking to live separately. They're seeking to live separate from a culture in which that, that they really consider to be be too prideful, too fast-paced, um, opposed to God's plan for, for his people. Now, it's not just horse and buggy. They, they also refrain from uh, having electricity in the homes. They refrain from flashy clothing. Uh, they refrain from relying on governmental aid or, or uh, medical insurance. But while the Amish forms of separation might be, might be more obvious or visible than some others, um, they're definitely not the only group that seeks to separate themselves from broader culture in some way. And, and some of us here maybe have, have grown up with, with prohibitions against things like card playing or, or dancing or going to movie theaters or drinking alcohol or, or, or something, uh, something along those lines. Whatever it is that, that, a, that a group of people or, or an organization chooses to refrain from for religious reasons, the, the thrust of that de- decision is usually the same. There is usually the desire to be separate from sin in the world, and that comes from God's calling that we see in Scripture on his people to be holy as I am holy. It, it usually all goes back to that in some way, seeking to live out that command, be holy as I am holy. There's an understanding that sinfulness and holiness do not go together. So there are efforts to, to show that separation. 
Now, when it comes to the Amish, for example, a, a person who is outside of the Amish community might, might look at them and assume, wow, that's taking it to the extreme. You know, or, or, or perhaps the temptation is to point out hypocritical areas that they might, seem, might see. I know that I, in my heart, am, I, I fall into this, especially when I see an Amish person talking on a cell phone. Like, I, I, mean, I mean, we laugh, and it's hard to not point a finger and say, what are you doing? Like, come on now. But, but the truth of the matter is, believers in Jesus have been called by God to a certain type of separation from our sinful world. And, and, and we can debate the details of that calling, and, and we'll get into that a little bit as we, as we move into application this morning. But, but the fact remains that God has called us to be holy. That, that, that much is sure. We know that from Scripture. And in living out this holiness, there is a separation from sinfulness that, that ought to take place. So, so we're picking it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning, and, and we're going to see what Paul has to say about this type of situation to the church in Corinth. Of course, this is, this is who he's writing to with this letter. So I would encourage you to open to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we are picking up where we left off last week, so we will be in verse 14 as we start this morning. So 2 Corinthians 6, 14 says this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So let's stop right there before we go any farther. In what area of life is that statement usually applied? Or Marriage, right? I mean, that, that's kind of the, the first, the, that's where our minds go, right? We, re, we read that verse and we think, well, that's talking about marriage. And, and that is indeed, I believe, one area of application that applies to what Paul is saying here. But it's by no means the only area. Not at all. We, we, I think we actually miss the bulk of what Paul is saying when we limit this, when we limit the application of that statement to just marriage. If we were first century believers in Corinth, and that's who Paul's writing to, if we were first century believers in Corinth and we heard that statement being read from Paul's letter, I believe our first thought would not have been about marriage. I believe it would have been about the many pagan temples that existed within the city of Corinth. This is something that Paul addressed in his first, or in the first letter that we have in 1 Corinthians. We can't think about pagan temples in Corinth like we might think about our own church building. So, so when you think about this building and, and what takes place in this building, probably think about weekly worship services, um, probably think about things like Bible studies or, or, or discipleship gatherings, probably think about uh, the occasional wedding or funeral mixed in there. The average Christian goes to a church building for those kinds of things, right? The pagan temples in Corinth consisted of those kinds of things, but so much more as well. Pagan temples in Corinth would have functioned as restaurants and banquet halls. So people would have hosted private dinner parties at the pagan temples. Uh, these pagan temples, uh, uh, local trade guilds would be associated with certain temples. So, so if you were a silversmith, for example, then, then your trade guild might conduct business and hold meetings at a certain pagan temple in the city. 
um, civic festivals were held at these temples. So, so all of those various meetings then had religious aspects to them, especially the ones that included eating of some kind, uh, meat especially. That meat would have been sacrificed in that very temple to that very pagan god. Um, even, even the events that, that didn't involve food still would have had prayers and other rituals devoted to the god of that temple. Um, as part of those activities, there were, there were regular occurrences of, of drunkenness, of carousing, sexual promiscuity. A person today can vow not to step foot in a church building and and for the most part, if they're, if they're not a believer, for the most part, they're, they're, they're not going to see their life altered much. Maybe there would be conflict when it would come to like a wedding or a funeral or something like that, but, but a person can make a vow not to step foot in a church and by and large live their life as they have been, as they've been doing already. A person in first century Corinth who made a vow not to step foot into a pagan temple would have found almost every area of life greatly impacted. I mean, even grocery shopping would have been difficult if you'd made that kind of vow in first century Corinth. And that, that's why in First Corinthians, Paul spent ample time talking about food that had been sacrificed to idols and sold in the market and you know, what the believers ought to do in these various situations. A person in Corinth who heard the message of the gospel and came to accept the message of the gospel had a very difficult decision that they needed to make. What would they do about all the customs and in rituals that centered on pagan gods and took place in these pagan temples? What would they do about that now that they were a believer in Jesus Christ? Does that mean that, that, that a new believer should make a vow to never step foot into a pagan temple ever again? Should a new believer continue participating in those social interactions because idols that are worshipped in those temples are, are nothing more than wood or stone or, or metal or something like that? Um, should a new believer cut, all, cut off all interaction, not just with the temples, but anybody who did participate in those pagan temples? You can see the decision that has to be made here, right? I mean, how, how is this new faith in Jesus Christ going to be lived out in a very pagan culture that centers on these pagan places of worship? So with that being said, let's go back and, and start again, verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6, and kind of keep that context in mind as we're reading through this. Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? And that's a name for Satan. What, punish, uh, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So he talks right off the bat about this yoke, right? Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Uh, a yoke is not something that's commonplace today, but you've perhaps heard it described before. It's, it's, uh, it's something that goes across the shoulders or the backs of uh, uh, two oxen or donkeys or other animals, and, and it joins them together in such a way that they can work together to, to pull a, a cart or, or plow, for example. They were bound together in order to accomplish a task. 
But in order for that yoke to be effective, you, you, you really need two animals that, that are not just the same, the same size and strength, but, but really even the same temperament if it's going to be truly effective. They had to be able to work together in order to get the job done. So what Paul is telling the believers here in Corinth is that they, they were not to be bound together with those who were not believers. And, and he goes on to, to ask really five rhetorical questions in order to make his point. Believers and unbelievers, he says, are, are able to be bound together really as well as righteousness and lawlessness, as well as light and darkness, as well as Christ and Satan, as, as well as the temple of God and idols. And in other words, those things have no business being bound together. In fact, you might even argue that they cannot be bound together. It just isn't possible. Try and bind light and darkness sometime. See if it'll work, because <laughs> it just doesn't. Light and darkness do not go together, just like everything else in that list that Paul gives. Do not go together. So what Paul's saying is a, a believer really had no business socializing in a pagan temple in Corinth. They had no business participating in business transactions in these pagan temples. They, they had no business being involved in civic meetings in these pagan temples. Paul's saying it, it just, it wouldn't work because according to Paul, he goes on to say, they were now the temple of the living God. Believers themselves, individuals and, and corporately as a group, are temples of the living God. That, that, that's one of the outcomes of, the accept, of their acceptance of the gospel, the salvation that they receive from Jesus. And as the temple of the living God, Paul went on to say that there's some promises and some commands that come along with that. So, uh, so let's pick it up where we left off and look what he goes on to say. Again, he makes this statement halfway through verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, here's the first promise, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So here then comes a command. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then here comes another promise. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my son, you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So there's this reality that when, the, when the believers in Corinth accepted the message of the gospel, they became temples of the living God. And as Paul said here, you see there's, there's promises and commands that come with it. The first promise given by God was, was the promise of his presence. Promise of his presence. And, and the specific words that Paul quotes here are from Leviticus 26, which is what Jim read for us uh, a little bit earlier. As God is calling the people to himself, he, he promises them intimacy with himself through his dwelling with them, his, his interaction with them. When you think about in Leviticus, when, when, when God was speaking those words in Leviticus, that presence was something that had not been seen since the Garden of Eden, really. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, none of them had that kind of intimacy with God. I mean, these are the 
these are the forefathers, the patriarchs of the Old Testament, of the Jewish people. They didn't have that kind of intimacy with God. They had occasional visions and visits and things like that, but as far as God's presence manifestly dwelling with them, that had not been seen since the Garden of Eden. And so, so God promises them, uh, he promised his people, I mean, in, in Leviticus, that promise was in the, the form of a tabernacle in the form of the temple, but Paul restates it here because that promise takes on new meaning. Now we become the tabernacle. We become the temple of God. He dwells within us, not within a specific building in the middle of the camp. And, and I just want to read verse uh, 13 of Leviticus 26 again, because the, this is what God said right after the words that Paul quotes here. Leviticus 26:13 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves, and I have broken the bars of your yoke. Sound familiar to something Paul was saying? I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So God had set his people free from slavery in Egypt and had brought them out in order to establish a relationship with them. And, and in setting them free, he, he says he broke the yoke which had previously bound God's people to their slave masters in Egypt. God's painting this picture. He says, Israelites, you were bound in slavery to the Egyptians. I've broken that yoke which bound you together. They were released from that yoke. They were set free to be God's people. They were set free to have God's presence dwell in their midst. You know, when, when, when God describes himself all throughout the Old Testament as, as the God who set his people free from Egypt, that, that is quite often how he refers to himself. I'm the God who set your ancestors free. I think it's entirely appropriate to think of God as the yoke breaker, that's who God is. He is the yoke breaker. God took his people and he broke the bars of their yoke so that they could be free. But that's, just, that's not just Old Testament God. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's New Testament God as well. When it comes to sin in our lives, prior to our salvation, we are in many ways yoked to sin. We are bound to our sin, to our sinful nature. We're, we're, we are enslaved to it. Apart from the work of Jesus, that is, that is our reality. We're bound to sin. But through the work of Jesus upon the cross, God is now not just the God who set his people free from Egypt. He's the God who has set his people free from their sins. He's still the yoke breaker. He's still, he, he hasn't broken our yoke as far as being enslaved to the Egyptians, but for you and me, he has broken our yoke that enslaved us to sin. That was true for the believers in Corinth. That's, that's true for us as well. You know, the people of Israel, they, they were blessed to have been set free from Egypt, and they were perhaps even more blessed to have God then come dwell in their midst be able to call God their God, to be God's people. And that's what Paul's quoting here, these, these wonderful, the wonderful reality that Israel was taken into once they left Egypt. And Paul says that's still the reality for us. We've been given that same promise, except even better. God has broken the yoke of sin and he's come to dwell among us, come to dwell in us. So rather than God dwelling in this temple building with limited access, he dwells in us. 
We're the temple which houses the living God. And that, that's a mystery. I would love to explain to you exactly how that all works, but I have yet to fully grasp that and don't know that I ever will this side of heaven. But we know it's true. We know that God has promised to his people that he comes to dwell within them, individually and corporately, upon salvation in him. It's, it's a mystery, and yet it's a wonderful blessing all at the same time. And so Paul reminds the church of that here. And then he goes and he gives a command. We already, we already read one command in verse 14. Don't be yoked, don't be bound together with unbelievers. In verse 17, he gives another command. Go out. Go out, be separate from unbelievers. Again, let, let's go back to Corinth. Let, let's, let's try and hear that, how the church in Corinth would have heard it. The group of believers is now the temple of God in the midst of all of these pagan temples within the city. God dwells among them. You can argue, rightly argue, that they are the only temple that has a real God dwelling within it. All those other ones in the city, false temples, pagan gods. There's not a real being dwelling there. Only the church can claim that. What Paul is saying is they have no business being bound once again to those empty pagan temples. They have no business being bound to them. They themselves are the temple of God. And so as a result, they ought to go out from them. They ought to be separate from, from that culture, from all those pagan temples. And this is why there were so many laws and regulations, I think, in the Old Testament regarding purity and, and separation from idol-worshiping people. Not only was, was Israel to, to stand out from other nations because of their separation, but, but, but those idolatrous practices of all the people around Israel had no place within the nation of Israel. They had no place there. God himself dwelled within their, with, within their camp. He dwelled in the temple. Why should they ever participate in any of those idolatrous practices of the, of the uh, nations around them? Well, the believers in Corinth, they, they don't live under the Old Testament law anymore. Their, their, their separation was not according to Old Testament laws, but their separation from sin showed itself as they refrained from being bound to those sinful practices that would have been found in the pagan temples. And, and make no mistake, in, in that culture, in that setting, such a separation would have been socially detrimental to the believers. There's no question. I mean, they would have felt the effects of a different kind of social distancing had they chosen to take that stand and not participate in, in what took place in these pagan temples. It's, and it's in the midst of that reality that the second promise that Paul mentioned, I think, takes on such significance. I mean, think about that. If the believers in Corinth were to take that stand and not participate in those temples, potentially be socially ostracized, from civic life, from uh, professional, occupational life, from just day-to-day -day life, be ostracized from, from everyone around them. Listen to the promise that is given to them. I'll read again at the end of verse 17. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me. 
I think you can argue whatever social interactions the believers were losing because of their separation from evil, God promised to replace with something even better. Say, you know, you're, you know, you're ostracized from the pagan temple. I will welcome you. I will be your father. You will be my son. You will be my daughter. I mean, God is, is saying what you're giving up is nothing. <laughs> you are gaining inclusion into my family. And I think that promise would have helped the believers take that step because there were very real outcomes that would have happened had they refrained from participating in these pagan temples. But they had this promise behind them knowing that even if I'm shunned by everybody else in town, I'm welcomed into God's family. He's my father, I'm his son, I'm his daughter. I think it would have encouraged them, I think it would have strengthened them, I think it would have helped them as a church body to walk forward in that path that Paul was, Paul was urging them to walk. And then let's look at the final command that Paul gives. So he starts with a command at the beginning, he gives a command in the middle in verse 17, and then he gives one more command in chapter seven, verse one. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So we read that verse and, and, and there might be might be some questions that arise in there regarding, regarding salvation and works, right? Because there's, there's you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a command there. There's something we are supposed to do there and it's talked about in conjunction with salvation. You know, that verse makes it sound like we have some kind of role in salvation. And truth be told, we do have a role in salvation. Our role is not in the securing of our salvation. It's not in the receiving of our salvation but our role is in the application, the, the, the living out, the applying of our salvation in our daily lives. I mean, notice Paul starts, the, uh, he starts uh, verse one of chapter seven. He says, since we have these promises. So the, the promises come first. The, the, the presence of God, the inclusion in God's family, that, that, that's God's work within us. Our salvation is, is a gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The, the, those promises come along with that. The actions Paul commands in this verse have nothing to do with the receiving of the promises other than, than the outcome of it. It doesn't secure salvation for us. They, the, those, that command from Paul has everything to do with living out the salvation that we've been given and the promises that we've then received from God. So we know that for sure, and then, and then second, you know, it talks about uh, bringing holiness to completion, or, or some other translations might, might use the word perfection there. Uh, our salvation is, is not something which, it, it's like God is unable to finish in and of himself, right? The, the phrase bring holiness to completion, at first glance, it might cause us to think that God wasn't quite able to finish what he was doing, um, and so we have to pick up the slack and finish the job. That, that, that's not it at all. And, and actually, I came across a, um, a description in a Bible commentary that I think I, I thought explained it uh, very well. And it said, the Christian must strive to make holiness perfect. This does not mean the encouragement of self-conscious piety, 
The word holiness has acquired a bad reputation through misunderstanding of its original meaning. The word is akin to wholeness and to health. It is the purity which comes from the complete consecration of ourselves to the purpose of God. This consecration is more than a state of mind. It is an active devotion of the will to God. So in other words, God is... God has started something within us through salvation and, and his plan and his purpose for, uh, uh, is, is not just for our eternity, but it's for our here and now as well. And so as a result, we ought to devote ourselves to living out God's purpose for us. We ought to strive to live out that purpose. That, that is the, the bringing holiness to completion According to Paul, one way in which we do that is by cleansing ourselves from from every defilement of body and of spirit. So we go out from sin, we we separate ourselves from it. In, In terms of the believers in Corinth, God had a plan for them and it did not involve participation in the rituals that took place in the pagan temples. His plan did not involve that and so they were to come out from it. They needed to carry out that plan by separating themselves from the actions taking place within those temples. So, that, so that's a lot of talk about Corinth, right? I mean, we've been talking a lot this morning about the, the context, the culture in which those believers found themselves. The $64,000 question now is, what about us? What does that mean for me today? What is, what is God calling me to do in my life? How do, I, how do I bring this holiness to completion in my life? What does it mean to not be unequally yoked? What does it mean to not go out from their midst? Even maybe a better question, what does that mean for us as a church body, not just individually? You know, I, um, I opened this morning talking about uh, the Amish community. That is one way in which people have, have sought to cleanse themselves themselves from every defilement, as Paul talks about here. Um, you may be happy to know I'm not going to ask us to go sell our car and buy a horse and buggy and, and join the Amish way of life. I'm not saying you can't, but I'm not going to say that, uh, that we should. But, I, but we do need to take seriously the command to not be yoked together, not be bound together with unbelievers. We need to take seriously the command to go out and, and, and be separate We need to take seriously the command to cleanse ourselves from every defilement. And, you know, maybe you want me to stand up here and tell you this is how you do it, step by step by step by step. I don't think I can do that for each one of us. You know, the specific details of of that I think will look different in each of our lives, in each of our families. I think there's some commonalities that we see in Scripture um, going back to 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 5, uh, you know, uh, Paul talks there, it doesn't mean that we never associate in any way with people who are not Christians. It does not mean that. Uh, I'm not sure how you realistically do that anyway, never have any contact or any type of relationship with someone who's not a believer. I, I, I don't know that that's possible. And even if it were, we're called, we're commissioned to go out. We're commissioned to go make disciples of all nations. We're, we're called to be salt and light in the world. Um, th- there was a book written about 40 uh, years ago by Rebecca Pippert called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. Maybe that's one that you've come across before. You know, the premise of that book is that we as Christians need to leave our church bubbles and, and go be the salt in the world. 
In essence, salt doesn't do any good in the salt shaker. It needs to, needs to leave the salt shaker and go out. So, so the calling in today's passage, I think, is not to remove ourselves completely from the world. You know, I think that would be antithetical to what Jesus has taught us through both his words and his actions. So I think that's quite clear in Scripture. I think it's also clear that, that we'll have to make some difficult decisions regarding opportunity, uh, places where we have opportunities to be bound together to unbelievers. Um, you know, I, we talked earlier, I th- marriage is an obvious place where that comes into play. It needs to be serious, serious consideration about, about the dangers and the realities of a believer marrying an unbeliever. But, but there's other situations as well, right? And again, I don't want to get too specific because there's, I think there's so much nuance in this. But, but you know, the jobs that, that we hold, the partnerships that we enter into, uh, you know, you know who, we, who we learn from, whether it's a, a formal setting like college or, or an informal setting through, through books or podcasts or something like that. I, you know, I, again, I... <laughs> In some ways, it would be easier to just stand up here and say, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, and, and make it as black and white as humanly possible. Um, but I, I, man, I just, I don't know that, that that's the best thing for us. I, I think what we need to do, I think as we strive to refrain from being unequally yoked, is we've got to give adequate prayer and, and thought to it. We've got to come before God and say, God, am I, you know, whatever situation, am I unequally yoked here or not? And let God, let his spirit guide us, speak to us, lead us in that area. And, and I think we hold one another accountable in that. We hold one another accountable to going to God in prayer in that manner. And I think we also give one another grace in that area as well because person may walk a path that I might look at that and say, well, I just don't understand it. You know, I, I may not even ask. I may just say, boy, it seems to me like you're, you know, that person's being unequally yoked and they're not supposed to do that. And I may not have a clue. I think there needs to be some grace there with what that looks like as we, as we faithfully come before God and seek his leading in these areas. You know, I, and I think Paul shows this back in 1 Corinthians when he talks about food sacrifice to idols there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. I mean, it's very nuanced. When we, when we looked at 1 Corinthians a couple summers ago, it's very nuanced regarding that one specific area about, about food in the marketplace. And so I think at the end of the day, the focus for us has to be on, on bringing our holiness to completion, as Paul says here. We have to have an active devotion to the will of God in our lives. And when the Holy Spirit reveals to us what that looks like and maybe reveals to us places where we have become unequally yoked in a certain area, then, then let's let him guide us. Let's let him lead us in the necessary steps to, to remedy that situation. Um, I'm sorry if you want it more spelled out than that. Um, uh, you know, it, it's good to have things we can walk out of here and, and say, I know how I can apply that right now, but I think, when, I think in this situation, well, I can give you something to do. Go pray. There you go. <laughs> That's the one thing to start with for sure. Pray. Let God speak to us in this area to know what this looks like, not just in the culture of first century Corinth, 
but in the culture of, of my life, in the culture of our, our lives here as a body of Christ in 21st century Eureka, Illinois. So let's be faithful to do that together and, and walk that road. And, and I believe then we'll bring holiness to completion. We'll be walking in the path God has for us. We'll be living out this salvation and this holiness that God has blessed us with. Would you stand with me? Let's, uh, let's pray and then we will close by, by singing two more songs together. God, we give you praise for, uh, for these words this morning. And in all honesty, God, it, it can be very hard to know exactly how to apply this this call to be holy in our lives. We've, we can all look around and see many, many different ways in which people live that out. God, would you guide each one of us? Would you guide us as a, as a church body? We want to be holy as you are holy. There's no question about that. We desire to be, to be known as holy people. And so would you help us in that? God, would you direct our steps? Would you, would you give us the strength to make difficult decisions? God, there, there very well might be social implications of, of this type of living. But would you remind us of your promises that you dwell with us? Would you remind us of the promise that, that you welcome us, that you are our father, that we are your son and your daughter? Whoever rejects us here in this life, God, we are welcomed into your family. We praise you for that. God, we thank you for the work necessary to give us those blessings. We give you praise of how you sacrificed yourself on the cross, gave of your life, offered yourself in our place that we might be holy as you are holy. God, we love you and we give you praise this morning and it is in your name we pray, amen.